everybody, welcome to the March 20th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on this bizarre story. The attack of a pregnant Longmont woman who was stabbed and then her fetus was removed. Uh, the fetus did not survive the attack. Patty Cahoon from Westward, this has been sensational news throughout uh, this last couple of days. Now, there are still some details that need to remain, that, that remain out there. The coroner has not determined the time of death, and that determines a whole host of legal ramifications. So we're still in the time period taping at noon on Friday. We don't know what's going on of all those details. But just from what we know about the story, uh, what do you think? Uh, well, we know everyone is talking about it. It's mm -hmm. the water cooler discussion. We know the perpetrator is crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no other excuse for this. We know that the poor woman who was attacked is going to suffer for the rest of her life. And we also know that the personhood campaign will be coming back again in Colorado. How many times have we defeated it, but it is going to come up again? Because no matter what the coroner decides, determines in this case, people will argue that the fetus should be protected and you should be able to charge murder, even if the fetus was not viable outside of the body. Right. Todd Shepard from CompleteColorado.com. Um, this is going, like, like Patty said, really uh, bring up the whole uh, personhood uh, argument again because last time, personhood had a, uh, they really based their whole amendment on not really abortion rights, but it came down to the woman who was hit by a car and lost her uh, baby in, in that uh, situation. So do you think this is going to be another uh, angle to that argument? Absolutely, I do. And I, I guess, pardon me if this sounds too cynical, but any political cause can take a tragedy. And, and that's, so if we look at the gun control, obviously, and I'm not saying you, you're taking this tragedy out of context, but you can take the Aurora Theater tragedy or the Columbine tragedy and use that to forward gun control amendments. But if you think, it, it would just be out of your mind to think that a tragedy could literally illustrate the fine line between an unborn fetus murdering an unborn fetus and and where that line between that and a viable baby becomes so absolutely this will reignite the entire personhood debate in colorado eric sonnen political analyst uh is it going to be too sensitive to be used as a political uh angle for all this argument no i don't think so i mean it's very sensitive it's bizarre mm -hmm. it's incredibly sad what happened to this woman I think it, to me it illustrates how both sides, I mean, we're talking about the abortion debate and how both extremes, both poles of that debate are rather extreme and are rather absurd. There is no doubt that a murder took place here. Now, whether based on what the coroner finds it can be prosecuted as a murder remains to be seen. But this was a fully viable fetus a few weeks away from delivery with a mother who had no intention other than to deliver this baby and to, and, and, and to parent this child. And you know, to me, it's whether the pro-life movement gets so extreme when they think a couple zygots running around a test tube have all the rights of, to life. Right. And, but, the, but the pro-choice movement loses me and gets equally extreme when they try making a case which is fallacious in this technological day and age 
that a fully viable fetus under a circumstance like this is anything other than, has anything other than those rights. Alicia Caldwell from the editorial page of the Denver Post. Uh, it's a bizarre story, but as from what we know right now, wrap it up for us. Um, well, there is a serious question as to whether this baby was alive um, upon, I guess, delivery is, is a way to, to put it, even though it, that sounds really out of um, offbeat or out of tune. Um, the, in one of the police affidavits, apparently the husband of the perpetrator saw the baby take a few breaths, mm -hmm. gasp. Um, now, back in 2013, the legislature did take on this issue um, as a result of another fetal homicide, which, wa which involved a drunk driver and Heather Surwick, also from up in that area in Longmont. Um, so this, this law change will allow um, this woman to be charged with a very serious crime. So whether it's actually murder or a very serious crime, I think I saw 32 years she could get for this alternative crime, there's no doubt she'll be punished. It's just a question of exactly how. Sure. The Department of Veterans Affairs announced on Tuesday that the new price tag for the VA hospital under construction in Aurora is $1.73 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars, a full five times more than the original project estimates. Colorado's congressional delegation faces a ticking clock to find the additional $930 million needed to continue the project or see work stop in May. Now, Patty, $100 million of that $930 million has already been I guess reprogram. That seems kind of odd. You can reprogram money from the VA department, but there's still $830 million that somehow Colorado's congressional delegation is trying to hit Congress up for it for a project that there's there's plenty of fingers of blame to go around. But still, I'm not sure if we see uh, the way out of the tunnel yet. What did you make of the big announcement this week? Well, I think the way to raise the money is to get a dunk tank, put the VA officials in it, and let veterans, congressmen, anybody involved start lobbing balls at these guys. A couple of weeks ago, I had said I didn't think it made sense to give this to the Army Corps of Engineers. And let me say I was wrong. That was Kaufman's idea. At this point, I would give this building project to a bunch of talented kindergartners who know how to put together Tinker Toys because they would do better than this project has come. It's gone up from several hundred million to six hundred million to over a billion and now we have 1.7 billion in the meantime you see all the building that has gone on around it CU has managed to build huge numbers of buildings there are a lot of independent not um, for-profit enterprises that have managed to build hospitals and buildings you can build hospitals in this day and age but I don't believe the VA can run one and it doesn't look like they can build one either Todd, one of the many facets, facets of this story that shocked me was that, uh, A, we've gone through multiple presidents in the tenure that we've waited for this hospital to be built. We've gone through multiple phases of the economy. We have recession or uh, prosperity. And it has grown five times. Now, public projects always grow a little bit. I mean, I haven't seen anything really come under budget. But five times, how do we make sure this doesn't happen to some other state? Well, you know, there's a great biography of uh, called The Power Broker. It's about Robert Moses who made all these roads and highways in New York. And this was one of his key tactics back then was he thought if I could just get enough concrete laid, there's no way the General Assembly will not let me finish the project, right? And that's exactly what's going on here. Now, I do want to be clear that one day, a few years from now, when this is finally done, 
our veterans will have a first-class facility from which they can be placed on an 18-month waiting list. <laughs> waiting, being on the waiting list will be better here at this hospital than at any other VA hospital in the world. And, and uh, you know, what other agency, uh, national, federal agency, has had a worse two years than the VA? This is not just a scandal of the construction. This goes along with the mistreatment of our veterans. Uh, this is a scandal uh, twofold in that regard. And then there's the final issue of, uh, uh, of the hidden crime uh, or the opportunity cost where this other money should have benefited someone else and instead it's going into this building. Who's losing out? We'll never know because that's a hidden aspect, but those people are being robbed of benefits they deserve too because this project's over budget. Eric, so far I've been heartened by the fact that we've, as Coloradans, we've approached this in a bipartisan effort. You see both Representative Ed Perlmutter uh, and Mike Kaufman uh, attacking this, and it deserves that and probably even more attention. Frankly, the delegation should be entirely united on this. But at some point, someone's got to pay the piper. And is it going to be the VA? Is it going to be the design team? Is it going to be uh, congressional delegates, uh, congressional representatives that has, an, has angry constituents? Who's going to end up footing this bill? Well, we're going to end up footing this bill. We know who's, gonna, we know who's <laughs> footing the bill. There's no great mystery about this one. This one leaves me speechless. And that's not to say I will be speechless. I will talk <laughs> here. But it, the magnitude of this mind-boggling mismanagement truly leaves you speechless. 328 million, as you pointed out, Dominic, or, or maybe it was Todd, yes, projects inflate and cost overruns are not exactly a newsflash when it comes to government projects, but to go from 328 million with an M to 1.73 billion, and the end is not yet in sight. Sure. Does anyone want to lay money that this is a final number? I don't. I, I wouldn't lay money that uh, that this is a final number yet. We, you think we're building the Taj Mahal or the you know the pyramids of Egypt or something? We're building a hospital. Yes, hopefully a state-of-the-art hospital. But at the end of the day, it is a hospital. There are two other issues that come to mind for me, Dominic. One we've talked about it before is in this day and age, should we really have a captive? veterans administration system. There is right. no argument that the veterans should be our highest priority in terms of taking care of their health care needs, physical, mental, and everything else, at the highest level with all the resources you know, that, that, that this country can muster. But is this current system the right way to deliver those services? Color me at least open to that discussion. Secondly, there is a school of thought out there. I'm not a healthcare expert. There's a school of thought that within some period of years, with the evolving of technology, that these big mega hospitals themselves are going to be white elephants or dinosaurs. And so we're spending $1.73 billion or whatever the final number is to build something which soon after it opens might indeed be a dinosaur. Alicia, I sense about there's shock in the community, there's anger in the community, and it's about the one population in our community that I think everyone can be unified about. No one wants to see veterans wait any longer for medical care that they need, whether it be um, physical or mental, yet they're the ones suffering the most here. Do you think there is something to be done here? Can, can there be a successful ending to this somewhere in sight? Well, we can't leave this thing half-built. I mean, I think that much most people would agree on. Who exactly is at fault and how we got here is a complex tale, and frankly, one that, that we've been following for years on the editorial board. We've had politicians in to talk to us. We've read GAO reports. We've had Kiewit Turner in to do um, a presentation of an hour or so 
of how this thing came to pass. And it it seems first a little bit about the structure. They had a designer, they had the VA, and they had the contractor. And these three entities were supposed to work together in this design build process to make this thing work. I, I personally lay the blame with the VA. They weren't listening to the contractor who was telling them that the designs they were getting from their designer couldn't be built for the money that they wanted to spend. And I don't know if it was a trust issue. I don't know if they, they actually just wanted something more grandiose because from my understanding, the, the inside of this place, there's this great hallway that runs hundreds of yards or something that looks like the inside of a Chris Craft, you know, with polished wood. And, you know, it sounds really, really um, beautiful, but pretty expensive. And there were points along the way at which this design could have been um, reeled back in, costs could have been cut, but the, the VA didn't appear to be interested in that. And I think, you know, one of them, uh, one, a VA official said in the story today that, yes, we're owning this. I think the owning is coming of, of just about five years too late. I think had they owned it earlier in the process, we would have a more reasonable final price tag. A bill that will make changes to Colorado's construction defects law passed a Senate committee this week. The bill will have mediation or arbitration as the preferred method of resolution, and it will require that the majority of property owners in any association approve legal action. The construction defects bill, Todd, has been a focus for this year's uh, uh, legislative session. It got out of a Senate committee. Do you see it going further? I think with the backing of some Democrats, like take, for example, Mayor Michael Hancock, uh, it, it has a chance, let's say. My big question about this, and I'll put my free market's beliefs on the line when I say this, is when I look at a conflict between uh, for a high-priced product like a condominium and there's extreme conflict between the builder and the end consumer, I wonder why typically the, the grease there is insurance. And I'm wondering where is the insurance industry failing us? You ought to be able to buy condo defect insurance as a consumer, and the, the, the builder ought to have condo defect insurance uh, to, to – uh, mitigate their liability as well. I, and this is not just a Colorado issue, right? I mean, I have a friend uh, in, Colo or in Chicago, excuse me, that they are permanently underwater on a condo because the price dropped because of the defects, and so now it's impossible for them to get rid of it. And I'm wondering where the insurance industry is failing us uh, and not providing us the products we need to liquidate these kinds of transactions. Eric, what do you think about the, pro, uh, the uh, prognosis for this bill getting out of the full Senate and its uh, future in the House? Well, I think the House is really where the rubber will meet the road on this one. The Houses are uh, of the two legislative chambers. It's the one dominated by Democrats. The sticking point on this bill has always been the trial law industry. Todd raises a great point about the insurance industry and where they are. We know where the trial law industry has historically been on this bill. It's been their meat and potatoes for a segment of the trial law industry in bringing these kinds of lawsuits. So the House is where the real battle, in my mind, is going to be fought, and whether we see whether there are enough Democrats. I would suspect most Democrats will maintain their party's historic loyalty to the trial lawyers, but are there enough Democrats who are willing to peel off uh, and move this bill forward. There's no doubt that has been a major priority of the business community, obviously the construction lobby, and, and, and some consumer lobbies uh, where condo development is basically dried up and stopped in this state. And with the explosion of housing prices, 
you would like to have condos as a viable option for people trying to get started in that market. Alicia, do you think Speaker Hollinghorse is going to put this in a House committee, assuming it leaves the Senate, uh, is it going to see a House committee that might pass it, or do you think she'll be tempted to send it to a kill committee? I think she'll give it a fair hearing. Um, I also think that insofar as it can be framed as an affordable housing issue, it'll get more Democratic support than one might expect. Um, that's a big issue um, for Democrats this year, and some some have been in the Senate committee where it has been heard raising questions, Irene Aguilar and Raleigh Heath, um, about, well, where is the affordable, where's the proof that this will actually create some more affordable housing? And I think if they can get over that hump and show some, you know, something um, that makes it seem like a, a plausible way to, um, that this bill will go, that they'll get enough support to actually make it happen. Patty, does Governor Hickelooper get this bill on his desk? I hope he gets some version of this bill on his desk. You know, it's an issue that seems so much like fracking in some ways to me, where there is just one side, there's the other side, and there is no meeting in the middle. But the reality we see here is you look around Denver, and there are these huge, brand-new buildings going up, all apartments, and people can't buy into the city. I think we have to agree that in Denver and the surrounding cities, we want people to be able to become home buyers if that's their option, especially with rents going up more than 10%. And... Some people make pretty convincing cases that it is because of this law that they cannot possibly build condos. Then you also hear on the other side that actually there are ways they could build condos. We need a full discussion of it. But we also need to be sure that somehow people can start buying houses or housing condos again in this town. Steve House won the chairmanship of the Colorado Republican Party last Saturday with a convincing defeat of incumbent chair Ryan Call. Some of the party were critical of Call's work during the gubernatorial primary last year, despite being at the helm while the GOP regained the state Senate and won a U.S. Senate seat. Eric, i got to be honest, uh, this surprised me. I knew he was facing a pretty stiff fight. Ryan Call was facing a stiff fight from Steve House, but uh, he lost by significant margin uh, to... Uh, after the seemingly the, the the afterglow of 2014's wins evaporated quickly for the state's GOP, what did you think? I think Ryan Call made a fatal mistake. He didn't follow the lead of his counterpart on the Democratic side, Rick Palacio, and add another 50, 60, 70 members of the Central Committee who were at the very last minute who were loyal to him. I mean, Ryan Call obviously needed to read some Machiavelli here or whatever about how to play the game. Uh, Serious note, I found it interesting, too. I mean, this was a party that had a pretty good year. They didn't have a home run year. Home run year would have been getting the governor's office as well. But they, you know, they hit a double or a triple, and this is for a party that had been shut out, wasn't even hitting singles. It was nothing but strikeouts for the last decade, and they had a good year. And you would not necessarily think that's the time to turn it over. There are really two Republican parties out there. There's the Republican Party of Cory Gardner, and Cory Gardner invested a lot in this fight. He was making lots of phone calls on behalf of, of, of Ryan Call. And Cory Gardner, in his campaign last fall, really rescued the Republican Party from increasing irrelevance in this state if they had not won um, that, that Senate seat in the best year they're ever going to see. But then there's also this party that you see in the legislature on, uh, on more than occasion in terms of drifting to its polar extremes. You see it in some potential primary challenges that Todd reported, I believe, in Complete Colorado this morning, uh, in, in coming up in Colorado Springs, and a possible recall of some Republican over in Mesa County for some alleged not being quite conservative enough. 
And this was the conservative flank of the Republican Party asserting itself and saying, we still run the show. Alicia, will we see this uh, new flank uh, use its power as we see the, candidate, the eventual candidate next year run against Michael Bennett? Well, I think they'll use it in some internecine warfare kind of ways. But, you know, it, when you think about the changes in campaign finance laws, the parties really don't have the same kind of power that they used to have. The 527s, the C, even the C3s and the C4s um, really control the money and the message. And while this may have some, you know, some local effects, some, oh, who are we going to nominate for this um, particular open seat, I don't think it's really going to change um, the main, the people who are on the ballot, you know, or who succeed at the ballot, I should say. Patty, if you're Michael Bennett or Rick Palacio uh, in the Democratic camp, are you happy about what happened on Saturday? Oh, in some ways you have to be celebrating a little bit because it's just got to be fun to watch some, you know, the institution on the other side take such a beating. But I think it's a lesson for every elected official right now, which is whether it's because of their political stance or just because they don't want being like being told what to do or like watching something be fixed behind behind the scenes and not very behind the scenes, voters are cranky. Voters are cranky and they want to throw the bums out, whether they're running the party or pushing the eminent domain bill down in Littleton. We saw that take a big fight. P people are getting very contrarian and want to register their complaints. And so I think we could see that again if people are not really listening to their constituencies. Todd, what effect will this uh, sea change in the Republican Party's leadership mean for the future? Yeah, there's a lot of speculation that this is a that this will drag the Republican Party to the hard right. Uh, you know, Eric brought it up a little bit. I, I personally don't see that. I see it as tilting a little bit more to the right, but not extremely. Uh, now, I don't want to underestimate the the actual political differences between those who voted for call and those who voted for house but i also think it would be a shame to underestimate the fact that i think steve house is better at retail politics than ryan call is and given the fact that house had just sort of come off this fine-tuning of his retail politics abilities by being in the governor's race i think he applied a lot of that in this campaign and, and quite frankly, he's just got a lot more of that chutzpah when he shakes your hand. And Ryan's just sort of more of the easygoing kind of, uh, if you can use the word, bureaucrat. And so I think at the end of the day, Steve sort of won with personality. And, but that's not to say that there weren't political uh, undertones to this. Ultimately, you know, if, if a Michael Bennett or whomever celebrates, um, it, it won't be for long. Uh, things will probably get back to normal with a slight more rightward tilt to some of the decisions that come out of the main party. Well, let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off. Well, a dis good thing and a disgrace. Dennis Gallagher, who only has a few more months left as the city auditor, just released a really damning report on the sheriff's department, the only department that maybe like, makes the VA administration look good. And uh, so we're going to miss Dennis Gallagher as a watchdog for the city, but I think his, sh his uh, movie's being shown on Channel 12 this week. Absolutely. The, the March 22nd at 8 p.m., Dennis Gallagher, one of a kind. Great title. Todd. Uh, without getting into too many specifics or naming names, let me just say I think the idea of mandatory voting is a disgraceful notion, and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Eric. Our favorite company, Starbucks, with their new campaign, Race Together. If there's one thing we're 
definitely need more of in this country. It's conversation about conversations about race, and thank God that Starbucks is there to fill that void. There is no void there, obviously. Because if a, if a coffee store chain can't bring us together, darn it, who can? <laughs> Alicia. I've thought about others, but I just can't get over the VA and that huge price tag. It's, it's outrageous, and people should be outraged about that. Yeah, $1.73 billion. Oh. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, season of the night, nice about somebody. Patty? Well, we're finishing off the best of Denver, which hits the streets next week, so it's our annual orgy of niceness. I have nothing but nice <laughs> things to say. But I'm going to return to the VA because compared to the treatment veterans have gotten from the VA, last night there was a great event at History Colorado, which is showing the 68 show. They brought in veterans not just of the Vietnam War, but back to World War II, came in, honored them, um, let them see the exhibit. There were several speakers. Hick and Looper was speaking. The head of the National Guard here was speaking. It was a great event that honored people who deserve to be treated better than they are by the VA. Todd. Uh, this week, the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition held a panel seminar on the Colorado Criminal Justice Records Act. In that discussion, John Ferrugia of Channel 7 mentioned that in Texas, you can appeal, if you've been turned down for open records, you can appeal to the Attorney General. Well, Rich Orman was attending from the 18th Judicial District, and now Rich and his boss, George Brockler, have actually engaged the Freedom of Information Coalition to talk about expanding this idea. How can we create some sort of way for people to challenge records that they've been denied without having to go to a lawsuit? And to have somebody of that stature that controls an entire judicial district, that's a, a phenomenal step forward And if it finally materializes for open records. That's a great time for Sunshine Week. Happy next week, right? Absolutely. Uh, this week. This, this is week. the end of Sunshine Week, yes. Sure. Eric. Two notable journalists who are moving on and who, who also have been important voices around this table. Eli Stokel is a friend of mine over at mm -hmm. Fox 31. I think clearly the best political journalist operating on, on the TV scene uh, in, in the local Denver market these days, moving on to Politico magazine, and uh, Eli will be a name we hear on a national level for many years to come. And my uh, table mate here uh, to my left, viewers right, um, <laughs> Alicia Caldwell, who recently announced that she's leaving the Denver Post editorial board, where she's been a stalwart and an important voice. And uh, moving on to the Colorado Department of Human Services. So both of their voices will be missed around town. I, I will echo that and worry that hopefully, hopefully that uh, Colorado inside wasn't the kiss of death. Was he, <laughs> Eli two weeks ago, Alicia this time. Uh, Alicia, you, round, uh, you finished it off for us. Thank you. And, and, I'd and all of you have been a pleasure to, to sit around this table and chat with, and, and I thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, but I also want to mention parents who this, um, in these, since the park test has started, um, who have not opted out their kids. Some 850,000 tests have been administered out of a possibility of a million. There's still a week to go. I don't think these opt-out numbers are going to be very great, and I think they're going to show that parents really are behind accountability. Well, that's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you miss any part of the show or want to see uh, catch our web-exclusive segment, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. I also send out our takes via Twitter, so please feel free to follow me there. Also, you can listen to our show as a podcast on iTunes, so be sure to check that out. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.